Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics Podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassan, and today's special for Sahel Security Week, we have the one and only Haney Ensibia. Haney is the the man behind the very popular Mena stream. I would say probably sub one of the most knowledgeable people online on on Sahel, and uh, and in particular Burkina Faso. Haney is also a senior researcher at Aklet and he does some other projects that he might or might not go into in a bit. And he's a friend. And Haney, welcome to the Great Analytics Podcast. Thank you for having me. So Haney, as I said, you know, this is a special uh, podcast. We're, we're doing a whole week on, on Sahel security. And I wanted to go into it with you. But first of all, you know, can you tell us a little bit about yourself on what the origin is from the Mena stream and how you got where you are today? Yeah, first of all, Ahmed, thank you for the invitation. Uh, my name is Henia Saibia. I'm the director of Mena stream. Yeah, Mena stream is a, it's a research uh, consultancy focusing on the North Africa and the Sahel region or more, or West Africa more broadly. We have special niche on conflict, political violence, and security and military affairs, uh, and provide bespoke uh, services to, to a range of clients, including international organizations, government agencies, and other consultancy firms. Yeah, and I mean, to, to provide a, a little bit of background on how I began to work in this domain. It's a quite long story. Uh, I'm a football player at the base, so to speak. I was a youth elite football player, but my career ended quite abruptly due to a very serious injury. So I went through uh, two surgeries and never really recovered, which kind of changed uh, the trajectory of, you know, what I intended to do in my life and due to the blood sweat and tears invested over the course of my of my childhood and youth i really you know fell behind with my studies so uh, i reached adulthood i began to work in various branches but in any case at some point i, I didn't find any of the stuff that i did very stimulating so at the age of 25, I really decided to kind of reschool myself and take up my studies, which I did. And eventually I joined the, the Middle East and North Africa studies program at Stockholm University because I really had an interest in, you know, international relations, politics and other, you know, topics like geography, religion and Basically, also due to my own origins as a Tunisian and Algerian by descent. So I always had quite strong connections to North Africa and also Middle East due to, you know, personal connection and, and kinship ties. And uh, on that road, you know, and you re-educating myself and try to find, you know, a different kind of path in my life and do something that I was really interested in. You know, it kind of planted the seed uh, and the idea of what I wanted to do in the in the near future. At the same time, you know, starting, you know, re-educating yourself at a at a later later stage in your life also have some limitations because you know I'm based in Sweden and you know the domain which I'm I'm currently in it's very kind of limited. So, I mean, you could, you could possibly aim to get a post as a diplomat or something, but you know, it, it becomes very difficult if, if you have reached a, a certain age. So for that reason, you know, I, I started out small beginning on Twitter, basically. So th this is kind of the unfiltered story <laughs> about, you know, yeah. I, how, how it all began. So mm -hmm. I mean, initially it was just like a hobby. You know, I reposted stuff that I read related to, you know, things that were happening in the Middle East and so on. When did the Mena stream start? I mean, the Twitter account uh, was in 2015. 
Okay. So it's not that long ago, but I started my, you know, studies way before that. So it was a quite a, quite a process, you know, because I, I had a son during the time and a little hiatus with my, with my studies as well. But I mean, I, I started the Twitter account in 2015 and initially it was very kind of hobby like just my general interest trying out this application and, you know, following stuff that stuff that was happening, you know, throughout the world and especially in, in the broader uh, MENA region. That's why I chose the name MENA Street because, I mean, as I said, it began with a very kind of rough idea of developing some kind of trademark and, you know, on that way, it, it has evolved, I mean, over all expectations. Yeah. So to begin with, it was, as I said, very random, you know, just posting stuff, reading stuff and following what other people do, like uh, think tanks and just news in general. But at the same time, as I said, I, I had a quite strong connection. And at one point in 2010, I traveled to Tunisia with my wife and my eldest son to just try and see how, how it was to live there and, you know, just, just try it out. And also let, to let my son, you know, see country of, of his, you know, grandparents and so on. Mm -hmm. But after a while, you know, I kind of explored ideas of, you know, staying there and, and living there for, for, for a longer period of time and also seeing what opportunities there were for doing business. But at this time, I really didn't have an idea about, you know, working in this domain that I'm currently in. It was more like maybe starting a gym or, you know, doing whatever kind of business that could, you know, subsist a way of, of living in the country. But at the same time, you know, the bureaucracy and, you know, adapting to a completely different system, it, it has some, some challenges. And, you know, at one point, you know, we decided it's time to go home and make some more money and possibly return in the nearby future. Mm -hmm. Eventually, that didn't happen. But instead, the Arab Spring or the Arab Uprising were triggered in Tunisia. So because of that, it was like this wave of protests that, you know, spread across the whole region. At the same time, I was reminded that I always had this frustration that, you know, information coming from the Maghreb countries was always quite limited. It was mostly mm -hmm. Arabic and, you know, French language uh, news, but yeah. very kind of censored and filtered. So you didn't really get that kind of in-depth that you were looking for, especially related to certain sensitive topics like you know, terrorism and militancy and security matters, because at the time of the former president Ben Ali, the country was quite closed in that regard, even though it was, it is really a tourism country. But still, when it comes to things that are sensitive and happening on the ground, there was very little to find, but that changed with the Arab Spring. And there were even some outlets that were you know, English language like Tunisia Live, for instance, which became quite popular and did some interesting work to provide a greater public with insight on matters uh, related to Tunisia. And I kind of had a similar idea to create some form of translation service, you know, from French to Arabic into English and post it as some kind of blog. But in the wake of the Arab Spring also came a lot of things related to terrorism and the emergence of, you know, the Islamic State and the civil war in Syria and mm -hmm. everything that spread across the region, including in North Africa, in Libya, in, in Tunisia, in Algeria and so on. And it became quite natural, natural because I had an interest in conflict in general, in geo geography and, and many other kind of subtopics. So on that road, I kind of niched myself by starting to follow more closely the conflicts and the insurgencies that erupted in some of these countries. And eventually North Africa was really my initial focus, even though I had the original idea to cover the whole of MENA, 
but I also thought it was beneficial to kind of have a more narrow scope instead of being like omnipresent. And on that way, the focus became more niched on a specific set of countries in North Africa, but soon also in the Sahel region. Because I was always intrigued by the Sahel due to the, you know, cultural or relative cultural proximity, especially, you know, between North Africa and the northern parts of those countries. Mm -hmm. And on that way, you know, I kind of accumulated some knowledge and started to learn more about the region. Yeah. And it's really on that road that I ended up doing what I do. All right. And when was that when you pivoted towards more Sahel coverage? I mean, it, it, it was quite simultaneous because, I mean, mm. my interest had dated far more back than when I, you know, started focusing or specializing in the Sahel region. But still, it was pretty much at the same time around 2015 or something. So you set up Menestream, you continue, and then I remember that you and I met for the first time in 2019. And what was the progression like from starting as a hobby, getting more into it, becoming respected by researchers and analysts around to, you know, make a decent living as you're doing right now. Yeah. I mean, it was a a quite slow process. I would say it wasn't like I started doing what I do and overnight everything, you know, went great, like a rocket on, on NASDAQ or something. It was really not like that. So it was a lot of, you know, free work for, for several years, just, you know, building the trademark credibility and, and so on and and simply are on the road just you know learning you know what i was researching myself so when we met in 2019 i mean my company wasn't doing very well it was more like a placeholder mm-hmm. you know for what was to come but anyways in in the in the past few years ever since things have really really progressed yeah. What do you think was the catalyst to that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, when I started doing this, I also began, you know, you build your own network and Mm -hmm. you have the privilege to really, you know, connect this uh, with some really clever people. And I mean, some, some of those, they also kind of, you know, promoted the stuff that I posted. And provided opportunities. I started writing some, some blog posts and guest posts here, here and there. And on that road, I kind of, you know, built, built a name in some way. And after that, you know, the opportunities started to, to show up. But I mean, the, the social media or, or Twitter was really kind of, you know, the, the entry port for what I was doing. So now you're focused on, on the Sahel. You do a lot of research. You're, you're part of different projects focusing on different elements within the Sahel from arms trafficking to terrorism to general security and, and, and geopolitics. So if we look a wide lens, so if we start with where do you think the Sahel? I mean, I know it's multiple countries, but overall, what do you think are the, are the biggest challenges at the moment for the Sahel? Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult to be optimistic uh, when uh, following or observing the trends, the prevailing trends that we have seen in, in the past couple of years because they are really marked by a continuous escalation of conflict. I mean, measured by, by all metrics, uh, so to speak. So the number of attacks... Armed actors, uh, you know, proliferating number of deaths, you know, conflict related deaths, they are, you know, continuously increasing. And also like the trajectory in certain countries, I would say Mali and Burkina Faso as well are of major concern. I mean, regarding how things are developing there. And yeah, so I mean, it's really hard to see that things will, you know, change in a positive way in the near future and i mean this this relates both to the to the growth and the expansion of 
militant groups, including the Al-Qaeda-affiliated Jama Nusratul Islam al-Muslimin, but also Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, which was designated a distinct province early this year. And with the withdrawal of France from Mali in mid-2022, they really left a security vacuum behind themselves, and this was clearly exploited by Islamic State, which initially didn't have that same kind of territorial control, but coinciding with the French withdrawal, they launched this major offensive of a really unprecedented scale. And I mean, more than a thousand people were killed, even according to moderate estimates. The majority of them were civilians, but also, you know, militiamen from local groups like uh, the Hamasi and Gatia, but also rival jihadists from from Jenin. And not only by consolidating, you know, control of Menaka and Gao, but more broadly in the Liptakugurma or the three-state border area, they also began gradually trying to develop some form of pseudo-state by beginning to engage in more kinds of governance activities. And that was really a change that came with the designation as a province. But I mean, it, it's not, it doesn't only relate to the Islamic State that, you yeah. know, the political stability throughout the region has, you know, been quite poor due to the takeovers by, you know, military juntas. There are, you know, sig- significant democratic backsliding. And, you know, due to that, I would say that the states with their current transition governments have really opted for a kind of full war approach, which by itself entails an escalation. And you don't, you only don't have the issue with the insurgents or the jihadis. You also have, you know, this issue between, for instance, in Mali, Bamako and former Tuareg rebels with growing tensions that could bring us back to a similar situation as in 2012 when the conflict really erupted. At the moment, you see this escalation of violence. And there's something that you and I spoke about earlier this week on, and I think we spoke about this before, 2022, particularly in Mali saw, I don't know if it's Burkina Faso the same, but Mali saw the highest or the deadliest year uh, recorded. And much of that was through government uh, hands. I mean, how do you think that that happened? Well, why do you think that, that that trend appeared? I mean, first of all, it was the deadliest year since, since the onset uh, of the conflict. But it was also the first time that, you know, the Malian armed forces became the deadliest actor. And this is based on not only the number of civilians they killed, which, you know, totaled more than the combined number of the previous decade. Wow. And we are speaking about what is reported. Yeah. At the same time, the Malian armed forces also killed more militants, reportedly, than the total of the previous decade combined. Okay. The thing is here is that, you know, a large fraction of these reported fatalities comes from Malian authorities' communications alone. So those are mm. largely, you know, single-sourced claims by the government in their, you know, weekly and bi-weekly reports. So, I mean, you really need to caveat that because they have an interest in portraying their counterterrorism operations as as a success for their popular base. And therefore, you know, you really have to consider those potential biases. At the same time, it should be noted that this development really kind of coincides with the arrival of what the Malian authorities describe as Russian instructors. But I mean, in the international community, most people agree that 
those so-called Russian instructors are mercenaries from the private military company, the Wagner Group. Yeah. And they have really enabled this return from certain areas from where the Malian armed forces had largely disengaged or withdrawn in the previous years. So one could say, if we're going to be frank, that this return has been extremely violent. And I think that is clearly reflected by the civilian fatalities from these military operations, which in many cases have been extreme, extremely indiscriminate. And while Fulani or, you know, the Fulani community has borne the brunt of these military operations, we also see that other communities are also affected. So even if the Fulani community mostly throughout the conflict has been extremely kind of stigmatized and, you know, viewed as complicit with militant groups, due to both kind of perceived or real links. And, and this is something that goes back to, you know, in the wake of, of, of the Tuareg rebellion. Mm-hmm. Because when, you know, the MNLA started, you know, their their operations, the, the Fulani, they joined, you know, jihadi groups for protection. And even ever since... Because that they did that, they gained this kind of, I mean, they, they became like stigmatized in, in that regard and perceived as a, a community susceptible to, you know, jihadi recruitment. But that is also due to kind of their own history of, you know, the, the jihads, the full, the full jihads of the 18th and 19th century, which is obviously very different from today's modern guerrillas or you know, the insurgencies that we see throughout, you know, Africa and Middle East. But all this yeah. combined and, and that they, by kind of ancestry and heritage, are, you know, predominantly Muslim and, you know, also inhabit many of these kind of border areas uh, in the region where, you know, militant groups have, have achieved a certain degree of control and strong influence. Just to, to play the, the devil's advocate here, the arrival of Wagner and the arrival of more heavy weaponry and different aerial platforms, and as you said, operations in areas that historically the government has pulled out from, doesn't it make sense? It's more deadly because there's more operational Temple, or does that not hold water? No, I mean, I, I think this, this is completely correct because, I mean, the operations are usually spearheaded by helicopter air landing operations and airstrikes that have increased substantially and even more when compared to, you know, previous operations that were mostly ground operations because the Malians really didn't have those capacities. At the same time, it also brings us back to the question why countries like Mali decided to partner with Russia in the first place. Because, I mean, France have been in the Sahel for a decade and have been conducting quite broad-based uh, counter-terrorism operations, but still the situation have only continue to deteriorate over this time. And I mean, while France has been engaging in both numerous of airstrikes and large-scale military operations and so on, it really comes down to this kind of collective failure of, in an effective way, containing the conflict. And populations in countries like Burkina Faso and Mali they really didn't see the utility of France as they had been present for so long time, but they, you know, couldn't observe any improvement of the security situation. And secondly, France and other countries, including the US, they have been very kind of reluctant on providing the means that, you know, Sahelian governments themselves want because I mean, I don't think they want to be dependent. They want to have those means to be able to conduct 
their own operations more independently. And Russia has really provided that through the, you know, acquisition of, you know, aircrafts and, and helicopters. And with Wagner as this kind of policy tool, it also brings another component to the package provided by Russia, which is, you know, greater firepower on the ground and different kind of intelligence uh, gathering capabilities, you know, that maybe the, the local forces weren't as efficient in doing. But still, at the center of, you know, Wagner's tactics is really coercion. So I think it needs to be said that they are very efficient in killing because they do. And I mean, all the numbers and the reported fatalities, as I already mentioned, you know, points in, in that direction. Mm -hmm. But is this efficiency of, of killing people meaningful for counterinsurgency? That is highly debatable. Yeah, that's, it's very difficult because this is a problem, obviously, that many countries across the Sahel, as well as in other parts in the Horn and, and, and DRC and Mozambique have, where, you know, they don't have the firepower because most of these countries have arms embargoes placed upon them by the UN Security Council. And, well, Russia doesn't really acquiesce to that. So, so where do you see the trajectory of, of Burkina Faso? And I know that's the country that you follow most closely. Yeah, I, I would say that I follow Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger at pretty similar levels. Okay. But yeah, I, I mean, it, it's correct that Burkina Faso, especially in the context of, you know, Russia's, you know, spreading or growing influence and also the possibility of, you know, future Wagner deployments, Burkina Faso has really been, you know, a target of such a potential employment of Wagner. And I mean, there were so many kind of converging factors that point, pointed in that direction. But I mean, it's still to be seen whether that will happen. But I mean, considering the difficulties that Burkina Faso is in and after two successive coups, I mean, the likelihood is that President Ibrahim Traore might take such a turn, not only because the major challenges he's, he's facing. I mean, just in the past days, we have seen reports of dozens of Burkinaba soldiers being killed in the far north of the country in successive attacks attributed to, to the Islamic State. And I mean, this is only a few months into his tenure. And considering what happened to his predecessor, Damiba, it cannot be excluded that he will, you know, meet the same fate. So as, you know, the initial strategy that he adopted to let the volunteers for the defense of the homeland or the VDP to play a more, you know, central role in his counterinsurgency strategy. I mean, I think we already have seen some of the limits, even though, I mean, we have to be honest that it's difficult to kind of really evaluate success just a few months into, you know, his, his reign as he took over, you know, the country in late uh, September. But still, I, I think there are limits for what the VDP can achieve. And we have also seen this growing trend of uh, civilian targeting by government forces in Burkina Faso, but also by you know, militant groups such as JNM and IS Sahel. And due to that, it really is the continuation of this escalation that I already mentioned earlier. And I mean, if his strategy will fail, it could be that he really choose the option of Wagner to kind of try to, to turn the tide more in his favor and also kind of to protect himself. Yeah. And which... I think a lot of Wagner experts uh, would agree that that's, that's being Wagner's like predominantly reason for them to exist, to ensure governments don't fall. I mean, that's what they, that's what they were there for in Syria. That's what they were there for in Libya, which they didn't really, it didn't work out that way that they wanted. But in, in Qatar, it did, right? So if we move towards Niger, where the dynamic is a bit different, I mean, I don't see Wagner going into Niger anytime soon. However, 
they might look at their neighbors and say, well, we are able to do more. Or do you think that France is, um, and maybe the rest of the international community is tighter in the seat there? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think we need to get back to, to the previous uh, passage regarding okay. that Wagner is like trying to prevent governments from falling. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's more about that they, their business model is to kind of intervene and provide their services in failed states. Yeah. Because th- that, that's really mm-hmm. how, how, how I view it, at least, yeah. you know, with the, with the cases that we have seen. I mean, oh, I agree with you on that. Not, not that all countries are failed states because I mean, there are very kind of local and strong differences be- between the, the countries where they have intervened. But still, it includes Syria, Libya, Mali, Mozambique, and they are also, you know, getting a foothold in other countries, in other countries. Like Sudan. Uh, like Qatar, yeah, Sudan, and also Cameroon, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so to, to begin with, I, I think that is a quite, you know, important point to, to underscore. As for Niger, uh, the situation is really different. At the same time, which is quite astonishing, is that Niger, in comparison to uh, neighboring Mali and Burkina Faso, is facing so many different kind of threats. So you have like already, you know, Libya, which was extremely destabilized in the wake of, of the fall of the Gaddafi regime. They have the Boko Haram insurgency in the southeast of the country with the Difa region mostly affected. At the same time, they have their, you know, center southern border with Sampara and Sokoto in Ni- Nigeria, where this kind of criminal insurgency uh, driven by bandit gangs is both spilling over into Niger's Maradi region. That is not to say that there isn't, you know, like very kind of domestic dynamics feeding into this, because I, I think there really is still what is happening in Maradi and along the border with Nigeria is quite murky because, you know, there is very little information about the, the specific groups or those, you know, engaging in the violence there. They are, you know, really attributed by this catch-all term armed bandits, uh, but not very kind of granular when it comes to, to really who they are. At the same time, you have Islamic State which is really the dominant non-state actor across Tilaber region and also in parts of Tawa. While in southwestern Tilaberi on the border with Burkina Faso, there you have JNM, which is the dominant actor. And based on all this combined, you can see that Niger is really facing a quite significant host of threats. While it isn't really as complex in Burkina Faso, even though Burkina Faso have been much more overrun compared to Niger and the same in Mali. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it has a lot to do with the geography of, of Niger, but also that Niger historically has taken a quite different approach to militancy and rebellions in, in, in general. They have been historically more open to, to dialogue and have you know, certain channels of communication open to different armed groups. So I think that has been beneficial. But at the same time, you have this issue across the G5 Sahel, the various countries, it is really about survival in many cases. So each country do the best they can to keep their own country as stable as possible. And sometimes that that could have, you know, ramifications you know, for, for a neighbor and vice versa. Even in Niger, it has o- often been dismissed that, you know, the insurgent problem is something that isn't really domestic. That is something, you know, a kind of exogenous problem and spill over from coming from neighboring countries. Like in the Southeast, it's, it is the Boko Haram insurgency, which certainly have roots in, in Nigeria. But I mean, the problem have really taken domestic proportion, proportions as well. And that is really the same thing in 
in the Northwest, in, in the Tel Aviv region, because I mean, even when we looked at the recent offensive in Gao and Manaka region in, in Mali, it was really staged in some areas of Niger. So sometimes, you know, a country can have this kind of hands off approach, you know, just to have, you know, certain kind of calm, you know, in their own border areas, but it could be detrimental to, to the neighbor. But also at the same time, you have a very kind of weak presence of the Malian government forces in parts like Gao and Manaka. So that kind of have also hit Niger numerous times because there are so many attacks that were staged in Mali that happened in, in the northern parts of Tilaberi and vice versa. So it's really a kind of a sort of vicious circle of, of, of insecurity and just, you know, weakness more in general and inability and, and, and a lack of capacity to, to really coordinate actions to confront the mutual kind of threats that these countries are facing. And I think this has been very clear in, in the case of the G5 Sahel Force, even though there have been some issues related to the lack of funding to conduct operations, but eventually due to the, the political instability in certain countries, this kind of, you know, regional coalition basically broke down after being glued together and spearheaded by France for several years. But it's still kind of, you know, indicative of the lack of will and ability to, to really pull resources and coordinate actions together. Interesting. I mean, I think we're, we're kind of like moving a sliding scale from violent to maybe less violent. What is your stance, even though you might not follow it as, as well, on chat? Yeah, Shad, I mean, it's really not my area of, of expertise, but I mean, we have seen that one issue when it comes to Shad is that France have, have a very kind of different approach when it comes to, to the military takeover or, you know, the succession of President Debbie following his death. And also like France intervening to, to protect regimes that face threats that are not necessarily terrorist and which is really outside of the scope of, you know, what was intended with, for instance, Operation Barkhan when they conducted airstrikes against rebels, you know, coming from, from Libya in, in the north of the country. And, you know, th- this kind of different measures or, or treatment of various regimes, it has questioned really France's objectives and, and interests in dealing very differently with with various regimes. So, I mean, Shad has received a very kind of, a much more favorable treatment in, in that regard. So, again, to play a little bit of devil's advocate here, um, isn't that because France is very dependent on, on Chad and maybe a little bit less so Niger because of uranium supplies? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know really because uh, there are so many other places where they can get hold of uranium. And you have e- even seen in the case of Niger that they are basically dismantling operations in, in, in the north of, of Agadez where they had these uranium mines in in our lead. So I, I'm not sure if that dependency explains, I mean, the uranium dependency can, can explain that, but they, they have a long history in Shad that, you know, predates even, you know, President Debbie and, and goes, goes far back. I mean, there are, there are other people that are in a much better position than I to, to answer any questions related to Shad. But I mean, they have an interest because they're, you know, center of, you know, operations or <clears throat> logistic hub in, is in, in Jamina. So, I mean, I, I think that makes Shad a, an important uh, country for them to maintain uh, a presence. Uh, at the, at the same time, they have really kind of restructured or 
kind of made Niger as their central hub now of counterterrorism operations, but still, you know, even, even Niger finds itself in a, in, in a somewhat, you know, fragile position because there are similar sentiments and very strong anti-French sentiments there, uh, similar to in neighboring Mali and Burkina Faso. But still, I, I think the Nigerians have been kind of better in ma- maintaining and, and really dealing, dealing with these issues and, you know, framing France's role as beneficial to them. Yeah. And I mean, uh, I've written about, about Chad. So I'm, I'm semi understanding of the dynamics there. And obviously, you know, France has supported for decades, uh, leaders in, in, and supported takeovers for decades and didn't really say anything when there was democratic backsliding in, in Chad. Right. So mm-hmm. that is interesting. And, and, and some, some would say hypocritical. Um, exactly. And obviously there's another element where the rebels, uh, which is the family of the, of the current president is allegedly supported by Qatar. I mean, that's, I think that's where they are physically. And I think under, uh, former regime in, in Sudan, they, they got support there. So obviously there are a lot of different dynamics and, and, and different proxies and, and all that kind of stuff. What I find fascinating, and, and I think me and you have spoken about this before, is in all this like sea of, of, of chaos. And, and I'm just, you know, being very liberal with the word chaos because it's, it's relative. Obviously, if you live there and you see it from the outside, you only get the negative news. People push back at me and say, well, you know, you're, you're carrying a narrative of, of making it worse than it is. No, I only focus on something that I understand which is, you know, security. But how come that, and, and, and I know you, this is not one of the countries that you follow as closely, but how come that Mauritania remains relatively unscathed from insurgencies, terrorist attacks, and the instability that we see in the neighboring countries or in the G5 Sahel at large? Yeah, I mean, the, the, I, I think there are, numerous explanations and also things that are very kind of difficult to decipher or or to know whether it's uh, true or not for instance to begin with tania has taken a a quite different approach uh, to militancy in in general they have been more like accommodating more open to to dialogue they have had this you know program including, you know, providing amnesty to, to people who uh, had engaged uh, in, you know, violence uh, in Mali or even in, in the country itself. So they have been more, you know, very much more open to dialogue and to find this kind of indigenous solution to the problem. At the same time, again, you, you can also see quite clearly that they haven't been really uh, at the forefront in the fight against, you know, militant groups, you know, in, for instance, in Mali or, or in any other country uh, in, in the region. So, so their own engagement has been extremely limited. And these, these rumors have existed for years and there have been reports about, you know, both tacit agreements and non-aggression pacts and so on. But I mean, I, mm-hmm. I even think that, you know, in between, I think the truth is some somewhere in between, you know, that, that, you know, there is this possibility of, you know, a tacit agreement. And I mean, it's nothing that I believe would be exceptional to Mauritania. I, I even think that could be the case in, in, in other countries as well. I mean, as we have seen, for instance, recently in, in the past few years that, you know, militancy from the Sahel has expanded, you know, more kind of southbound to the West African littoral states, including Benin, Togo, and Ghana and Ivory Coast. But yeah, underlining that Ghana is the country which hasn't so far been affected at all, or at least there, there ain't no documented attacks that would 
that with certainty can be attributed to, to jihadi groups. So there are yeah. some indications that they have taken a, a similar kind of hands off approach mm-hmm. by, you know, not being ex- extremely or not aggressive at all, even though militant groups, you know, use the northernmost border areas as, you know, a safe haven in some way in order to kind of flee jump border and, and, and conduct attacks in, in neighboring Burkina or in Togo or so on. And I mean, this, this can happen naturally, right? That they do this and the Ghanaians, they don't have, there is no problems. So maybe there is, there doesn't have to be, and this is the same for Mauritania. There doesn't have to be a tacit agreement or, well, any agreement at all, right? It can be that, yes, maybe it's used as a launching pad, but they don't engage in activities in Ghana. So maybe the Ghanaians feel like, hey, why, why would we push this, right? And, and so there doesn't have to be any communication between a group like JNIM or OISL to a government and say, hey, let's sit on a table, right? It can't be that, hey, we're not doing anything, so you don't do anything without speaking. Yeah, really. exactly. But but I mean that that is basically what a tacit agreement is. Mm. You know that. Yeah. You know they are, the, the militants themselves. They they have an interest in securing logistics flow, freedom of movement, and so on. And for that reason, they don't have an interest in attacking those countries because mm. they need these points of you know withdrawal. Yeah. And for All that right. reason, you know, they, 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 they play cool and, and don't disturb, you know, their hosts. Mm-hmm. For that reason, they are in turn not attacked as well. Yeah. Very interesting. And when you see the UN mission or the UN missions, the one in Mali and Niger? Yeah. I mean, the, the, this obviously concerns primarily Mali. And yeah, I, I, to begin with, there's been, a lot of obstruction when it comes to the uh, MINUSMA uh, peacekeeping mission ever since France withdrawal. I mean, this, this concerns, you know, denial of, you know, access to, to airspace, uh, quite significant to the point that as I see it or as I understand it, that the UN mission has difficulties in, you know, providing necessary uh, security and intelligence even for their own security and, and their convoys. And, and this uh, poses a real problem when they are faced with, you know, this type of obstruction and really calls into question, you know, the viability of the mission and whether they need to kind of change the whole focus of the mission. And clearly there are some indications that the Malian themselves, it's not necessary that they don't want Minusma there, but they want to see them in a very different role and capacity, more as a, as a counter-terrorism ally instead of, you know, the things that are integral parts of their mandate, including, you know, monitoring human rights violations or, you know, breaches of the the Algiers uh, peace agreement and so on. So they want to see a more active UN. Yeah, they want a more active UN that basically becomes a sort of force multiplier that provide, you know, the Malians with what they need to conduct through counterterrorism operations, whether it be medevacs or or whatever, but not in the capacity of monitoring the potential bad things that the Malians are doing on the ground. Mm. Yeah, I mean, th- there has been multiple countries that left the MINUSMA mission. Where does the U.S. stand in all this? Well, this is a very good question. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, the, the U.S., I believe they have been, you know, very engaged uh, on multiple levels, but still prefer this kind of, you know, role more, not, not so obvious and like having this kind of very kind of light uh, footprint. They do, you know, provide ISR. To local forces, we can observe some form of, you know, supervision 
even in terms of some of the large-scale operations uh, conducted bilaterally, including between the Burkinabes and the Nigerians as part of Operation Tangli, which is this joint operation conducted between uh, Mali and Bur- uh, Niger and Burkina Faso along their shared border, where there were some, you know, U.S. involvement, especially in a more kind of supervisory role. And I mean, they, they have their bases. They are conducting, you know, training and all that, but not really engaged in the way of having boots on the ground. And they have, you know, kind of let France have that kind of responsibility and take that, you know, more kind of primary role in, in that regard. And I mean, how the U.S. will engage in the future, it's really not something that I can, you know, respond to. I'm not really in that position. But I mean, there's been calls for U.S. engagement to be more like focused on, you know, development and less on counterterrorism or, you know, as a continuation of the war on terror. And... I mean, I, I think uh, the U.S. doesn't have the same legacy as France. So uh, for that reason, they are in a much better position than France mm-hmm. uh, to kind of, you know, use their leverage, whether it comes to, you know, providing support for rejuvenated democracy or development or like uh, assisting in other, you know, ways that could be beneficial for these countries, whether it's to kind of support, you know, dialogue or or something with, with our groups, even though that is that has always been quite taboo in, in, in the US as well. But I, I think they really have uh, that that leverage and, and can use it in a meaningful way to kind of possibly improve the situation. Yeah. No, I think uh, you're hundred percent right. I think that these calls are have been made for a long time. I mean, the, the the Chinese have taken that approach to go for more development and, and projects and direct foreign investment. And uh, you make an interesting point there where you say that they don't have the same legacy as France. So that, that definitely makes sense. And I hope, you know, the U.S. re-engages Africa more than you are seeing it, you know, um, but... It's mainly around critical minerals and, and countering Russia and Chinese influence. I don't know if that's necessarily beneficial for, for host nations or locals. Henny, I mean, I think we can talk for hours and hours about the Sahel. In a short, in the next 12 months, what, what if you have to make a, an insight or maybe not a prediction, but assessment on where, what do you, I think you did it in the beginning a little bit already. Where do you think we're going in the Sahel? What will we see more or less of? I mean, I, I think, I really think it's uh, sad to say it, but it's pretty clear that I presume that we will see a lot more violence and conflict. And at the same time, there are things that could happen, but we really don't know yet especially with regard to Mali and the tensions ongoing uh, between Bamako and, and Kidal, which I view as a, a major source of concern because, I mean, the challenges are already so significant that if we would see, you know, another kind of sub-conflict being triggered once again, it would be extremely, you know, both destabilizing and fragilizing for not only Mali, but for the sub-region. But more generally, I think that we will continue to see what we see. And that is, you know, an escalation where countries, especially Mali and Burkina Faso, are continuing to pursue this kind of total war approach that has been ongoing, you know, in, in the past year in Mali and more recently since uh, President Ibrahim Traore uh, took power in Burkina Faso and the, you know, acceleration of the VDP program, uh, which I think, and I mean, it's pretty clear that we observe it, you know, 
as we have seen in, in already in, in the past few months, that, you know, not only is the state violence increasing, the state-sanctioned violence increasing, and that is to say what these self-defense groups or militias are doing, but consequently, you also see that the jihadi groups, they are responding to, you know, popular mobilization, or as in the case of Mali, they now see the Russian Wagner mercenaries as a force that basically have replaced France and they try to use it as a sort of enemy to kind of mobilize around and really exploit and use the victimization of the, the local population in, in their propaganda. And I mean, along that line and also the competition between JNIM and Islamic State, you know, it's also kind of something that not necessarily is anything good, which many people believe in, in the first place when, you know, the, the conflict broke out between the two groups that it was, it would be beneficial for counterterrorism that these two rival or competing jihadi groups would fight each other. Instead, what it has generated is more like renewed mobilization within or to these groups, you know, in the respective kind of areas uh, of influence. And I think that we are now seeing, you know, how this is evolving and, you know, the kind of sort of fallout fr from, from those developments. All right. It was very worrying assessments that you made there. If I had to look deep, deep into the future, it would be an interesting case if the situation gets flipped and, uh, and if the, if the, the violence gets more and, and get becomes more brutal that all of a sudden, you know, the enemy of my enemy becomes my friend and certain groups get support from the West. Obviously that's very far looking into the future. If Russia is a common enemy, uh, through Wagner, I don't know what your opinion on that is, but just me just throwing a wild card scenario in there. I want to, I want to ask you, and I ask this to all, to all my, my guests, my esteemed guests. I mean, you had a very interesting journey into this, into this field. First question I want to ask you is, would you recommend to take the path that you did? And secondly, if anything, what would you recommend somebody that's looking into what you're doing as a researcher, as, as an analyst? And what, what advice would you give them? I mean, I, I think there are some, some living examples already. And I mean, it's really kind of heartwarming when, when someone tells you that they were kind of inspired by looking at your own work and like that factor in amazing them kind of, you know, engaging and, and beginning their own journeys. And I'm not going to mention any names, but that's something that I, I have heard from people that I even, you know, have at times, you know, worked and, and collaborated with in, in various capacity, but also kind of really nice to see that their own journeys were much more like accelerated uh, compared to my own because yeah i mean they had very specific and and useful skills that enabled them you know to to kind of do what they do in a in a very successful way so i mean yeah if you are interested in in, in what you are doing there it, there really is no limit but at the same time it, it demands uh, you know a lot of work engagement and interest in what you do because i mean it's like with everything if you don't really burn for for what you do the possibility for success will be extremely limited so passion is important yeah definitely and more skill wise what advice would you give for people to to learn to teach themselves or, or learn through school or courses yeah i mean there there is such a wide you know field and and many different specialties that you can you can focus on or 
or niches and so on. But I, I think some kind of originality is always necessary, you know, to, because you really need to kind of stand out in some way. And this can be done in various ways, but, you know, to kind of really try and, and, and specialize in something specific, even though it can have, it has both, you know, pros and cons, you know, so, some people, they try to kind of be like these omnipresent, you know, conflict observers that, you know, follow everything that happens across the world. But for me, I, I think it's more beneficial to kind of have a more narrowed focus and, and really kind of try and learn as good as you can the, the specific field that, that you're interested in work on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that social media push is, is, is addictive, right? That dopamine hit of likes, shares and comments and, and compliments. So I think it's important for people to understand what is real and what is not. And I think I am, and I hope you don't mind me saying this. I am from the moment that we met in person, you were one of the few people in this like online researcher analyst world that I knew in person. And from, you know, the conversations we've been having over the years, I can say that I'm incredibly proud of your, of your progress and where you are today. And I, people that know me and young people, old people that I've spoken with, I always point you as how it should be done or how it could be done. And that you're a great example for people. I hope I don't blow up your, your Twitter account and your DMs too much by me saying this for people asking you for advice. But I think it's a, it's a badge of honor that you get these comments, as you said, and, and, and people say that I think for, for, for me and for, for great dynamics at large, I'm super happy that people are inspired with what we do, but I can genuinely say, you know, I'm, I'm super happy with where you are and it, it really warms my heart. I'm not saying this for the podcast, you know, I feel this way that I'm really happy, you know, what you've been, what you've been doing and, and, uh, People don't know, you know, what, what you and I know, but against all odds that you have done it. And, uh, you know, maybe in the future we can talk about that. But yeah, again, incredible job. I know you're busy as hell and it was hard for me just to get you on this podcast. But I want to ask you, first of all, do you have any questions for me? I, I mean, not, not really. I, I would like to add that, I mean, first of all, it, it it's extremely flattering and I, I'm not sure if I deserve all all the kind words that you yeah, are yeah you of, do yeah you do you know flooding me with but for me i mean most of all having the privilege to to work with something that is extremely kind of you know fascinating intriguing and interesting in many ways it, it's something that i really enjoy but i would even say that the real bonus and and the biggest benefit that i have you know from working in this field is really the so many you know excellent minds and like at all levels the, the amazing people that i have had the privilege also to 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 get to know and i mean some of them are really people that i perceive as or i view as you know friends 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 for life really so i mean that is something that has brought many positive things uh, on my end in, in this whole kind of experience, if I put it that way. So I go back to you. Uh, do you have a question for me or anything, really? No, I, I, I really don't. I mean, right. so if you want, if you want to, to I'm ask gonna, me something else, please, 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 yeah, please. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. It's just this one question that I've, that I've started asking in this podcast. As I said, you know, I know you're a busy guy, but at the end of every podcast, we ask, or I ask people, what are they reading? What are they listening to? What are they watching? So is there something? And please give me an answer because I don't want to hear I'm too busy. I'm a family man. There must be something, even if it's nothing to do with what we do. Maybe you like reality shows. I don't know, care. But is there something that you do or you engage or you can advise people to, to have a look at just for fun? Yeah, this is a really tricky question because I'm, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm really kind of the average guy, you know, not Netflixing with, with my wife. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in the spare time. And sometimes, as I say, 
like in solidarity, watching, you know, reality yeah, yeah, shows, yeah. even, yeah. I mean, if I'm going to be completely unfiltered, like 90 days fiance and that kind of <laughs> stuff. But I mean, yeah, it's yeah. all fun, man. Yeah. You know, you, you, you do the best of the time that mm. you have, you have, mm. you know, to spare and, and just, Absolutely. you know, and, and, and enjoy with, with your loved ones. Oh, that's, that's, that's a great answer. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I can say that is something that I recommend, but mm-hmm. at least, you know, it's it's what what comes to mind when when you ask that question. Are you reading anything? I mean, otherwise, I, I read a, a mixture of of stuff, mostly related to I mean, my line of work. And mm-hmm. the latest book that I that I got hold of is the Mirage Sahelia by Remy Karayop. So I mean, I could I could recommend that as some interesting reading. Mm-hmm. Is that a French uh, only book? It's also in English. Yeah, it is a it is a book in French by journalist uh, researcher Remy Carayol. It's basically about you know the whole French engagement in the Sahel mm-hmm. uh, from a from a I, w- I would say a, a kind of both objective and, and in some way uh, a very kind of critical standpoint. Ah, uh, that we're, we're gonna put that in in, uh, in the show notes then. Any. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast. I know I had to, uh, I had to convince you to come on, but, uh, I think it's very insightful. I think you're one of the few people that says it like it is. And, and I really appreciate your insights into our Sahel Security Week. And for people listening, if you made it this far, thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for all the comments. I hope you guys found this conversation as illuminating as I did. And if you want to know more about Haney, Haney, where can they find you? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm accessible on the Menastream, you know, Twitter feed. So right. that, that is, that is my Twitter handle, Menastream. We will add that to the show notes too. So yeah. anybody that wants to, to look up your work and that we will, we will post that too. And, uh, I wanted to say something to the, the listeners too, is that we've been doing the Sahel Security Week. So if you're interested in it, go to greatdynamics.com. As I said before, in a previous podcast, you know, we're trying to offer people insights into what analysts, researchers, journalists, investigators, academics do. And we try to give examples and, and we try to teach people. And our course is coming out, guys. So keep an eye out on the website. Become a member of the newsletter. And for all the podcast listeners, if you want to know more about what we do and you want insights or you want to become part of our community, which we do vet. So just so you know, guys, if if, we, if you do not pass the vetting, you know, you, you cannot join. But for all podcast listeners, we offer a 20% discount for all the year subscriptions. So if you go to the website and we subscribe for a year, then you get to a 20% discount if you use the word podcast all small letters and guys keep on listening and and keep on following what we're doing and again Haley thank you for for uh, suggesting yourself to to this and yeah I really appreciate you being here you're most welcome thank you